My name is Matt, and uh, I'm so thankful to be with you this morning. As John said, Hume is a special place to me and my family. It was actually um, a number of years ago, I don't want to mention the number now, but uh, it was a number of years ago, the summer after my freshman year in college. Uh, my son Luke is here with us this morning, and I was talking with him on the way up. Uh, this was the summer for me that I committed my life to Jesus Christ, and my life has never been the same. And Oh man, that song kind of got me this morning. How many of you have never heard that song? Am I the only one or never? What an amazing song about just giving everything to Jesus. He, he deserves everything. And he changed my life uh, that summer here at Hume Lake. There was a, um, a speaker, his name was Jay Cardi, an old basketball player. And if you're, if you're old enough to remember, you, you know. If you're not, um, it was an older basketball player. I, I don't know, maybe it was just I thought he was older at the time. You know how it is when you're young? and you look and the person's old, like your school teachers, and some of you are young, and you're probably thinking, that dude on the stage is old. I'm not that old, but like, it looks that way. Jay Cardi, however old he was, he did this talk, and the talk was about the fact that you're like an onion. That on the outside, you look really good, but on the inside, uh, really good on the outside, but on the inside, you're really stinky. You know, you kind of smell. And he started peeling back the onion, and you know, every time you peel back the onion, it kind of smells a little bit more, and that was the reality of my life. I was a good church kid. I was a good self-righteous church kid. I thought I was doing okay. I was the poster child of everything, and, uh, and I was the poster child of nothing. And Jesus revealed that to me, and on that, um, that evening, I, I was sitting somewhere over here, I remember, and you know, you're supposed to stay back, and I was still too prideful to stay back. I didn't want anyone to know that like, that was me. So I didn't stay back, but I did go to that rock over here overlooking Pondy Chapel, and as all my friends went to the snack and scam, I sat down there. That's what we called it. That's, <laughs> that's what we called it. As they all went to the snack and scam, I, I, I sat on that rock, and I committed my life to Christ, and um, I'm so grateful. Um, so many things in my life have happened here at Hume Lake. Um, over the years, we came up here on vacation. I actually won my wife here at Hume Lake. And when I mean I won my wife, I mean when I came to Hume Lake and we were like hanging out, um, and, and I thought we were dating, she thought we were hanging out. But one of the Pondy leads had the audacity to invite her to a Pondy lead movie night, like right in front of me. He just like walked up, asked her, like she went, and I thought we were dating. Apparently, we were just hanging out. But that week, I won. And I'm so grateful because I've been married for over 25 years, 27, 28 we're coming up on. I've got three beautiful children, 22, 23, and 15. My girls have worked up here at Hume. My daughter was a Pondy lead up here. My other daughter worked up here in security. Uh, my son uh, just kind of finds a way to get you know, in the midst of everything here. It was just a home away from home. I was called to my church. I received the call to my church, to Village Church here on the front of the lawn. Um, I just, so many things here. Hume is my thin space. It's a place where it just seems it's so easy to hear from Jesus, so easy to connect with him. And I just want to pause and say, I'm so grateful and humbled to open up God's word uh, with you this morning in this place. I want to ask you to open up God's word, Ecclesiastes chapter one. And as I do, I want to tell you, I want to talk with you this week about a question that I've been asked more times over the last three years as a pastor than over the last 25 years of ministry combined. I've been asked this question so many times. I actually didn't think I would, but I was. I was asked this question many, many times. And the book of Ecclesiastes is going to address it. And the question is this. At the end of the day, what is this really all about? At the end of the day, what is this really all about? What what is life all about? Essentially, the question is, what is the meaning of life? 
You know, the hedonist would say the meaning of life is just to get as much pleasure as you possibly can out of life. The humanist would say that the meaning of life is to do good, to do good to yourself and to do good to as many people as you can as you live your life. That is really popular right now, right? I mean, the idea of being a good what? Being a good person. But we say all the time, and a younger generation says all the time, being a good human. That person is such a good human, and the humanist says that actually is the meaning of life. The pragmatist says, no, no, the meaning of life is just to live it strategically and efficiently and get the most you can out of life. The intellectualist says the meaning of life is to, to learn more, right? The existentialist says, no, the meaning of life is actually to think more. The materialist says the meaning of life is to get more, but there's been talk recently about the nihilist, and the nihilist says the meaning of life is to have and to do more of whatever you want because at the end of the day, life is just ultimately meaningless. You glad you came this morning? What is the meaning of life? I gotta tell you that the answer from the book of Ecclesiastes, it might actually seem like on the surface that, that he's gonna tell us that the meaning of life is kinda like the nihilist. It's kind of like the meaning of life is, is just to get and do whatever you want because at the end of the day, it's, it's ultimately meaningless. I gotta tell you, there's actually one very important caveat. And the caveat is one of the main points of wisdom that the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to kind of pull away. Who is the author of Ecclesiastes? That's actually a good question. In verse one, it says, the w- words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So commentators say and scholars say that it's either Solomon or it's someone like Solomon. It's either Solomon or it's someone with Solomonic type of wisdom that that is actually speaking to the Israelites, God's people, and he's speaking to them at a moment in time where they actually have an opportunity to pursue all kinds of things. It's a profitable time. They have an opportunity to pursue money and wealth and status and fame and success and power and other things. And apparently, apparently they actually have been pursuing some of these things. They've been pursuing some of these things and pursuing them as the most meaningful things in life. And as you think about that, it kind of sounds like, it feels like that the teacher may have well been writing to a contemporary American Christian audience that professes a lot of things about Jesus Christ but pursues a lot of the same things, unfortunately. Unfortunately, so many professing Christians, professing things about Jesus that we would all say are good and true, and yet we pursue things that we ultimately attach ultimate kind of meaning to, some of these kinds of things. And to an audience like this, and I think to an audience like ours, the preacher says this in verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. That's a lot of vanity. (laughs) And he says, all is vanity. The first thing that he's going to tell us this morning, that life is meaningless when we live our lives without the meaning maker. That's the caveat, that life is ultimately meaningless when when we live our lives without the meaning maker. So he says vanity a few times here in, in this verse, but he says it 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. 38 times he says vanity. And if you know the Bible, and if you know studying the Bible, and I know most of you, if not many of you do, you know that the Bible doesn't have sections that are underlined, right? And the Bible doesn't have highlighter. 
You can't get one of those cool little kits when you get the Bible with the case where it has all the different colors and you make notes. The Bible doesn't have that. What the Bible has when it wants to draw attention to things is, is a few things, but one of them is repetition. And so the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to draw our attention here to this idea that, that outside of knowing God, outside of knowing our maker, outside of knowing our meaning maker, that life is ultimately meaningless when we don't live our lives according to his design with him and for his purposes. You might say, well, why, why is that? Why would life be so meaningless if we just don't live it centered on everything that's centered around him? And the short answer that the author of Ecclesiastes is gonna give us is that because in, in the scope of human history, much less the scope of eternity, just in the scope of human history, like our lives are so incredibly short and inconsequential. I know that might be a little bit hard to hear right now. Let me, let me show you something to help illustrate this. Um, I know this might be kind of stretched out and distorted a little bit, but I'm not very good with keynote and kind of cutting and pasting stuff in, but, but this is, I'm sorry. <laughs> it looks so much better on my computer screen, all right? What this is, it's a chart of the average 90-year life of a human being. And um, my friend Chris shared this with me a number of years ago. And it's because we both have a passion of just getting everything we possibly can out of life. Not for the sake of life, but for the sake of Jesus and all that he wants to accomplish in and through our lives and the lives of our families. It's like we're passionate about Jesus, our families. We share all that together. He's like one of the people in life that I, we can just be so real about that with. And one day he brought to one of our interactions this chart. And he's like, man, this just hit me like a ton of bricks. And he charted himself out. So you can see where I'm at. Right? You can see where I'm at. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a little over halfway there. And, and it sort of looks a little ominous when you look at that. And I know some of you are looking at them going, I'm a lot farther along than that. You know, you would, you would color in a lot more weeks and a lot more lines. And many of you are thinking, oh, man, I've got it made. Like, I'm not really near that. I've got so much life to live. And I'll tell you, if you're thinking that right now, you should go find the oldest person at camp sometime today and you should ask them. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you they're gonna tell you something like this. They're gonna say, life goes really fast. Life goes really fast. And the Bible knows this and the Bible tells us this. God knows this. So he tells us, as Psalm 39 says, behold, you have made my days as few as hand breaths, and my life is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, say a lot, which means, right, like pause and think about that for a moment. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Our lives are really short. And so no matter what we work for, no matter how hard we toil, our lives are too brief. The things that we live our lives for outside of Jesus are so shallow, way too shallow. Unless the meaning of God is attached to it. The, old, the New Testament also says this, right? In the book of James, James tells us, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such place and We'll go to such and such town, we'll spend a year there, and we'll trade to make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Your what is your life? You're, you're a mist. You are a mist that appears for a time, like the, the mist coming up off the lake this summer in the morning and then vanishes. Again, if you don't believe me, just, just find the oldest person at camp, and they will tell you life goes fast. Life is short, and it's meaningless when it's lived outside of our relationship with and to the meaning maker. And actually, the teacher goes on in verses 3 to 11 to, to paint a picture of this and to prove his point. Because I think he's thinking maybe what you're thinking this morning, which is, is this really true? 
Is this really true? If you're young, you're saying, I don't know if I believe this. And so the teacher says, okay, I'm going I'm to prove my point to you. And I'm going I'm to paint a picture, and I'm going to take a lot of verses to do it. But he begins with a rhetorical question in verse 3, where he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Again, it's a rhetorical question, and he's expecting his audience to know it. And he's expecting us to know the answer to the question. And the answer he's expecting us to know is nothing. What does a man gain from all his toil under the sun? What does he want to gain? He expects us to know the answer is nothing, that man gains nothing apart from life lived with the meaning maker. If verse 2 is the theme verse of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, verse 3 is this theme verse of this summary, this section. What does a man gain by the toil with which he toils under the sun? That um, under the sun term is uh, living your life under the sun, S-U-N, right? Without living your life under the authority of the sun, S-O-N. And, and the word gain literally means profit. What is left at the end? What profit is left at the end? During COVID, my son and I started a skateboarding business together, and profit in business is a good thing. <laughs> and so when you start a new business, you, you want to get to a place where you're making profit sooner than later. And it usually takes two to three years, but... But at the end of the day, one of the reasons you're doing it is to make a profit. You have a business. Many of you have businesses in here, and, and you know if you got to the end of the year, year after year, and on your PL there was no profit, you feel really, really defeated. That's the point. And, and the, in the same way, like we, we want to get to the end of our lives, and we want to see gain. We want to see some kind of profit, not just the same amount going in, it's coming out, it's kind of all even at the end. We want to see gain, and that makes sense. And Jesus knows this, and so Jesus actually used this language. Jesus himself spoke to these ideas when he says, what will it profit a man? What is he going to have left over at the end of the P&L statement of his life? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus tells us the same thing that the teacher is telling us, is that to try to gain so much in life, whatever it is, wealth, even wisdom, success, power, money, status, whatever it is, to, 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 to gain whatever that is, as much as to gain the whole world, is to try to gain too much. If you haven't gained relationship with God through the meaning maker, if we haven't gained that, we've gained nothing. And the teacher proves his point that man gains nothing from apart from the life of the meaning maker by giving us a few different examples. And the first one is he gives us an example that, that any generation can, can relate to. So if you're part of the oldest generation in this room, you can get this. If you're part of the youngest generation in the room, you can get this. If you're in between, you can get this. And the teacher is wise, and he knows that every generation is asking this question. And so he starts with an example, an analogy of proof that every generation can understand. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, verse four, but the earth remains forever. You see that? A generation goes and a generation comes. Look, we say a generation comes and goes, don't we? Did you see the nuance? You and I, and we're, in our vernacular, when we talk about this kind of idea, we say, hey, yeah, a generation comes and goes, but that's not what he says. He says, a generation goes and comes, and I think there's a reason. I think he's focusing on the replacement of one generation with another. 
Like, <laughs> I am going to be replaced. My generation is going to be replaced. If you're one of the older people in this room, you know that's coming soon. Your generation is going to be replaced. The boomers, the largest generation in our country is being replaced right now. If you're a younger person in, your, in this room, you're thinking, I got a long time to go for that, but I'm just telling you, it's gonna happen to you too. Your generation is going to be, every generation is going to be replaced. One generation replaces another and nothing of great substance really changes. That's the point that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to make. Every generation thinks that they're gonna do something that's gonna affect some kind of monumental change. The boomers thought, we're gonna be a generation after we win the war that is gonna have no more wars. But what happened? They just gave us more wars. Gen Xers thought, we're gonna be the generation that has a better work-life balance, right? And yet they just worked just as hard. The millennials are the ones that said, hey, we're gonna be the tech-savvy generation that figures out how, like, how to work all this tech stuff so we don't have to work as much, but we're gonna be tech-savvy people. And I'm telling you right now, and you know this to be true, millennials are not tech-savvy, they're tech-addicted is what they are. And Gen Z, Gen Z thought, actually, I really don't know what Gen Z is thinking. <laughs> I mean, no offense, I, I really don't, but let's, let's just move on. I mean, I mean, the point is this, that every generation... <laughs> Don't you think it's true? I mean, what, what are we thinking? <laughs> Every generation thinks it's gonna be different. But the point is that nothing really changes. And the teacher proves his point with a, an, another kind of analogy, not just that every generation can understand, but that, well, that every person with every level of education can understand. Like you don't have to have a master's degree in philosophy to understand these ideas. I think sometimes when people read the book of Ecclesiastes, they think you need to be really, really, really educated to understand this. And the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, no, no, you just need to look outside. You just need to look outside. And Hume Blank is a great place to do this, isn't it? Look outside. Speaking of looking, looking look at verses five to seven with me. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the stream flows, there they flow again. Now they're saying, just look outside and realize that the sun goes up and the sun comes down, and there's a lot of motion, but nothing really changes. There's no gain. The wind blows from one place to another place, and you think it's just sort of free to do its thing, but no, no, it's on circuits. Something is happening. At the end of the day, there's no gain. The water flows to the lowest place, and as much as it fills it up, as much as the rivers are filled up, as much as the lakes are filled up, I did a, I did a wedding yesterday, last night, on, on the river in Kingsburg, and it is high, but as high as it can come, like it's, it's never gonna be completely full. When we look at the cycles of nature, what we see is that there is a lot of motion, but listen to me, there's not a lot of movement. There's a lot of motion, a lot of things happening, but there's not a lot of movement. Things essentially stay the same. Now listen, some of you are kind of leaning in, some of you are kind of leaning back. I see a couple of arms crossed. I say, is this really true? Some of you are leaning back going, okay, God, I see, I see this in the world. I, I get some of this. Like, I, I get that enough. I can look outside and I can see this stuff. The teacher's right. He's smart. He knows what he's doing. But, but we're human beings. I mean, we're, we're the most sophisticated beings on the planet. Like, the, things are different for us. We, we could accomplish anything. I mean, have you seen the things we can accomplish? 
And, and so what the, what the teacher does is, because he's smart, is he knows we're going to be thinking these kinds of things. So he not only uses an analogy that every generation can understand or every person with every kind of level of education can understand, but, but he uses, lastly, an analogy that anyone with, honestly, any level of self-awareness can get. And, and that's in verse 8 where he says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye cannot satisfy it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What he's saying is, no matter how many words that our mouths speak, they can speak more. There's no gain. No matter how many things our eyes can see, and our eyes have seen amazing things. Can you imagine all the things that the eyes of the people in this room have seen, all the amazing things? There is more. There is no gain. And no matter how many things our ears hear, at the end of the day, they can hear more. There is no gain. There's ultimately no gain, no ultimate profit at the end of life without, without the meaning maker. Now, this is sort of a brutal point right at the beginning of this point, isn't it? That the, that the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to make. And, and I think that he anticipates we're still not going to get it. And so he repeats this point, actually, in verse 9, where he says, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. The same things, the same rhythms, the same cycles, the same issues, they come up over and over again. And there's nothing new. There's no ultimately new meaning or there's no ultimately new profit. There's no ultimate new gain, no ultimate meaning outside of relationship with the meaning maker. And again, the teacher is wise. He anticipates we're going to kind of push back against this. He anticipates some of us are going are to be thinking, so... Pause, Matt. You, so you're saying, and I'm saying, I'm not saying. I mean, I'm saying because I think the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, there's nothing new. <laughs> there's, there's nothing ultimately gained. Like, there's no ultimate meaning in any of these things that human beings have accomplished and done on their own. I think this teacher's kind of archaic. Like, he's back in, like, ancient history he doesn't know how progressive our generation is. He doesn't know how intelligent we are. He doesn't know how capable our generation is. He doesn't know all the things that we've invented. This is an old guy a long time ago. He doesn't know the kind of policies that our government has passed. He doesn't know the kind of laws that, that we have kind of set up and how we're governed. He doesn't understand the kind of movements that we have created and, and led. We've led amazing movements as human beings. And the teacher knows we're thinking this, and he knows the objection. And so in verse 10, he says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? He says, it has been already. Just really short and to the point. It has been already in the ages before us. And here I think the big point is that there's nothing new to attach ultimate meaning to. Humans are really good at trying to attach ultimate meaning to new things. And can I just pause and say, that is not a new thing. Human beings try to attach ultimate meaning to new things, and there's constantly new things coming up. But that is nothing new. We've been doing that for a long time. And those things are not ultimately new. They've been done before, and they will be done again. And they will be done differently, and they will likely be done better. Again, the teacher's wise, and he anticipates, like, we're just going to make a final objection. We're going to say, listen, okay, you might, 
the teacher might know, not know my generation, but um, my, he might know rather my generation, but he doesn't know me. Like that might be true for everyone else, but like, Matt, you don't, you don't understand, you don't know me, or the teacher doesn't understand me. Like, yeah, that might be true for my generation, but <laughs> I'm kind of exceptional. And when I sat in this room as a, as a freshman going into my sophomore year in high school, that's what I thought. I thought, man, I know a lot, and I'm pretty good at sports, and I'm an all-stars and everything, and I get straight A's, and I'm, good, I'm a good son, and I'm a good friend, and I'm best friends with my pastor. And I, I mean, I lined it all up. Like, yeah, you might be saying that about my generation, but that is not me. And to that final objection in verse 11, the author of Ecclesiastes says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. He's saying there is no lasting legacy to the meaning of our lives outside of our lives connected to the meaning maker. And I hate to get a little somber on um, a Sunday morning, but he just kind of makes us do this for a moment. You know this is true when you go to a memorial service. And if you've been to a memorial service recently, you know that you go to that memorial service and everyone shares about that person who's no longer with us, who uh, is being replaced by another generation in the physical, in life under the sun, S-U-N. And everyone talks about that person and everyone honors that person and everyone says, that person, I'm gonna remember them forever and then they go on with their week and then they go on with the next week and then something happens at work and then something happens with their family and then they actually don't really remember that person very often for very long. Or, or you, might, you might show up at a, at a place that has a, a plaque on it. Some of you guys go to a university, a CBU or Biola or somewhere like that and, and um, well, one person was excited about CBU. Um, I got, I got students that, we have students at our church from both and it's, it's fantastic. But I know those buildings have plaques on them like from the family that really did so much work and labor to, to gain and then donated all that they had, you know? And, and someone will remember them for a little while and then, and then they won't. I say, so <laughs> is there any good news to this? There actually is. We're gonna talk about it all this week the meaninglessness of life without the meaning maker, but we're gonna talk about the meaning of life with him. So what's the meaning of life? Well, in the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, we'll give you a little preview. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The meaning of life is to live our lives with and for our meaning maker. That is the meaning of life. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes says, to live our lives with and for the meaning maker. And you know, on a Sunday like this, I'm assuming that everyone in this room is a person that knows this and that, that loves Jesus and follows him. But, but if, you, if, if, if you drove up with a family member or you're here and you're not yet a Christian for whatever reason, or, or you were just outside, you know, and you just decided to come in, can I just pause for a second and say, um, this is the way that, that God always intended it to be. He always intended us to have ultimate meaning in life in our relationship with him. As Christians, we believe that in the beginning, God created us in a perfect relationship with God and a perfect relationship with one another. 
and that the reality of this, that the meaning of, li- meaning of life is, is to live our lives with and for the meaning maker, that our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, they lived that life that had the fullest meaning it could possibly have because they lived every detail of their lives, big picture and everyday mundane, with and for the meaning maker. But if you're not yet a Christian, what the Bible teaches us is that our first parents, they weren't actually content with that. That they thought they could find meaning somewhere outside of life with the meaning maker. That they could find a bigger meaning, a bigger why, a bigger purpose outside of all the things that he had laid out for them. And in that moment, they sinned against God. They disregarded God. Tim Keller, who recently went to see Jesus, would say that it was, it was the de-godding of God. And, and the Bible teaches that we all would have done the same thing, and we all do. We all try to find ultimate meaning in other things. We all try to find ultimate meaning in other people other than in the person of Jesus Christ and the things that he has laid in front of us. And so what the Bible teaches is that God wasn't content to leave us in that place. That God could have just said, fine, you don't don't want to find meaning with me? Go the way of the sun, S-U-N. Like be replaced by one generation. Try to toil and strive. Try to earn whatever you can. Try to get as much wealth, status, fame, power, Try to live as healthy life as you want. Try to live as many years as you can. Try to get your name remembered. Try to get your name on a plaque. Try to get people to remember you generations from now. Go go for that. But God's not like that. God loves us. God pursues us. God wasn't content to leave us in this place where we're trying to find ultimate meaning in things that can never give us the meaning we're looking for. So God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And and the Bible teaches that Jesus is actually God's wisdom personified. The book of Ecclesiastes is an Old Testament book about wisdom. But the New Testament says that to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, to those who hear the call of God on their lives, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. That Jesus is the power of God and Jesus is the wisdom of God. That Jesus had the power to live a completely sinless life for us. And if you're not yet a Christian, as Christians, that's what we believe that Jesus lived a sinless life on our behalf. Someone said it in the video. Not only did he die a death in our place and for our sins on the cross, but, but he lived first lived a sinless life we could never live. Jesus lived a sinless life we could never live, a life that we're required to live by God that we never could. Jesus lived it for us. That's what the Bible teaches us. And then Jesus came to, to die on the cross and in our place and for our sins. Jesus' disciples actually kind of they didn't really get this idea completely. And I want to end our time by drawing your attention to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Because even Jesus' disciples wanted things like power, wanted things like status. And they thought that being attached to Jesus could help them gain those things. That even Jesus' closest disciples, guys like Peter, thought that they would find an ultimate meaning in their life by attaching themselves to Jesus so that they get power and status and fame. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I mean, right now, Jesus is a celebrity. Everyone is following him. The disciples are around him, like multitudes of people are following him. And the disciples are seeing that if they just attach their life to Jesus, they'll get money, fame, power, they'll get success, like they'll have it all. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's like, no, 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 you're not doing that. Far be it from you, Lord. That will never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. If you ever hear that, that is a bad day as a disciple, right? (laughs) 
You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Here's the part that sounds like Ecclesiastes. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Well, what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay to each person according to what he has done. If, if that's all that you and I have, to, to be repaid according to what we have done, we are not going to be in a good place in life and in our life before God. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus lived a life we could never live. Jesus died a death that we should have died on the cross, in our place, and for our sins. And if you're not yet a Christian, as Christians, we believe Jesus rose again to give us a life we could never have otherwise, a life that's forgiven, and a life now that's free to follow him and to attach everything about our lives, the ultimate meaning in all things in our life, to him. And that's the good news this morning. And I'm gonna tell you that every evening that um, we spend time together, I'm gonna share good news with you. And the reason I am is because, well, Jesus is only and he's, he's altogether good. And so even though we'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes and we'll kind of be tugging at this idea of the meaninglessness of life, we're gonna talk about the actual meaning of life in all kinds of things like work and wealth and adversity and more. As we talk about them, we're always gonna share good news. And the good news for this morning is something like this, that, that Jesus is the giver of life and the one who gives meaning to life through his life and his death and his resurrection to life. And I think that's good news. And I hope that's good news for you this morning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I just want to just pause and say personally, as, um, just as a person, as a Christian, not a pastor, not just, I'm just so thankful for the meaning that you've given to my life. I thank you for drawing me to yourself at this place. It is amazing that I'm standing up here and I'm saying these things in this place. After so many years of you drawing me to yourself in this place, I just want to pause and say, Jesus, I am so grateful. And Lord, we thank you for the meaning that you've given to all of our lives because of your life, your death, your resurrection for us. And so now whatever it is, whether, it's, whether it is money or wealth or stewardship or work or adversity or relationships or family or anything or whatever it is, there's so much meaning attached to our lives because we are attached to you, that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. And this morning we want to say we're grateful that we love you and we thank you. And we say it in Jesus' name. Amen.